You can take your Bibles and turn to Luke chapter 4 this morning. Luke chapter 4. The Oxford Dictionary defines it this way, as the desire to do something, especially something wrong or unwise. We call it temptation. And as we come to Luke chapter 4 this morning, we're going to see how Satan tempted Jesus to do something wrong or unwise. So in Luke chapter 4, let's look at these first 13 verses. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days, being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days, and when they had ended, he became hungry. And the devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. And Jesus answered him, It's written, Man shall not live on bread alone. And he led him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said to him, I will give you all this domain and its glory, for it's been handed over to me, and I give it to whomever I wish. Therefore, if you worship before me, it shall all be yours. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And he led him up to Jerusalem and had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And Jesus answered and said to him, It is said, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. And when the devil had finished every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. So immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit leads Jesus out into the wilderness where he is tempted by the devil for 40 days. Now don't miss that point. We get so focused on the three that are mentioned that we fail to remember he was tempted for 40 days. How many temptations could Jesus have been tempted with in 40 days? How many, how many per day could he have been tempted with? All right. And as Greg read this morning, and I'll make mention of a little bit later, in that Hebrews chapter 4 verse 15 passage, he was tempted in every way that we are, yet without sin. Forty days of temptation. So the battle's on. Jesus here is stepping into his role as the Messiah. Satan assumes his role as the adversary. Jesus goes from the baptistry into the frying pan, all right? He, he goes from a mountaintop experience, hearing his father say, This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased at his baptism, down into the valley where he's going to be tempted by the devil. And with each temptation, Satan offers Jesus a shortcut to his messianic ministry, an easier way to his messianic ministry. But each of those shortcuts would be outside of the plan of his heavenly father. And to our delight, Jesus rejected every temptation Satan put in front of him for 40 days. And so it says in verse 13, when the devil had finished what? Every temptation. 
I think there's a lot involved in the word every. So keep in mind now just how real and how complete was the incarnation of Jesus. When we use the word incarnation, we mean God did what? He became a man. God became flesh. That's what the word incarnate means. God became flesh and blood and dwelt among us in Jesus. Now, folks, he really did become flesh and blood completely. And and many Christians don't understand that even though they say they believe it. And the reason so many don't understand it is because nestled in their understanding of the incarnation is the thought that, yeah, even though Jesus had a human body, a physical body, his mind was not completely that of a human. I mean, how could God have a human mind and still be God? Surely the Father, the the divine, had to intrude into his thinking. And the reason they say that is because they don't believe temptation had the same effect on Jesus that it has on us. He's God. Yeah, God in the flesh, but he's still God. So, so yeah, temptation's not going to have the impact, the effect, the pull on him that it has on us. That thinking is just another version of an ancient heresy that was called docetism, which taught that Jesus only seemed to be a man. But the scriptures teach otherwise. And in the words of the writer of Hebrews in chapter 2, verse 17, it says, He had to be made like his brothers in every way. Every way. He didn't merely resemble humankind in some qualities of humanity, but in every way, in all things, Jesus was made like us. Christ's likeness to man was not something that was simulated. It was absolute. It was real. And then verse 18 of Hebrews chapter 2 says, For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he's able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. And the Hebrews 4 passage that says, We do not have a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. That's the only difference. Jesus didn't sin. So listen, folks, Jesus was really tempted. Really tempted. It was not an act. It was no put on. He was tempted like we are. Now, what does it mean to be tempted? Well, it means that part of us wants to do what is wrong. Right? I mean, if we have no desire to do wrong, then we can't be tempted. So temptation... Involves a desire to do something that's wrong. Does that shock us when we think about that with Jesus? Can we admit Jesus was really tempted to do something wrong? That there may have been the desire within him to be tempted in that way? Or do we have a false view of Jesus, one that just can't believe he was tempted like we are? Well, the real Jesus was tempted. 
The Bible says so. He was flesh and blood. It means there was the possibility that Jesus would sin. I mean, if there were no possibility of that, then there was no real temptation. And God, we know God can't sin, so it's, it, how, how do we balance all that out? Well, it's one of the great mysteries of the faith, and it's a shocking demonstration of God's love as well, that God cared so much for us that He put His very nature in jeopardy by sending His Son and allowing Him to be tempted. And if Satan had won this battle with Jesus, then God wouldn't be God. He wouldn't be the holy God of the Scriptures. As Jesus, God in the flesh, confronts Satan, can't you just imagine the whole universe holding its breath at the outcome? Will he give in? Will he sin? Now, it's not a fair fight. I mean, Jesus is weakened by 40 days of total fasting. But even at that, Satan is still at a severe disadvantage. Jesus may be physically empty, but he is spiritually full. Too many times, it's just the opposite with us. We're physically full, but spiritually empty. It's also good to make some observations about these three temptations that Luke focuses in on before we examine each one. First, notice how Satan will use the word if. If you are the Son of God, all right, he's taunting Jesus. In fact, in the original Greek, the definite article the is not in front of the word son. And so you could actually say that Satan said, if you are a son of God, not the son, but a son. Again, it's just Satan is, is taunting Jesus here. In essence, he's saying, prove yourself. Prove yourself. Another thing is that the three temptations parallel what's written in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. John writes there, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of the eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Now those verses also describe the three ways in which Eve was tempted in the Garden of Eden. Genesis 3.6 says, When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She gave also to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And there you have the three main ways that Satan tempts you. Through the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the boastful pride of life. And that's exactly how he tempted Jesus. And another thing is that even though Satan is the one that's doing the tempting, if we give in to the temptation, it's our fault, not his. We're responsible. We're accountable. Even though Satan is the one doing the tempting, if we yield to it, it's still our fault. We can't say that the devil made me do it, all right? You can't say that. 
And again, somebody might say, well, well, sure, Jesus didn't sin because he was the Son of God. Well, he was just as capable of sinning as what we are. It's also noteworthy that Jesus resisted each of these three temptations by quoting Scripture every time. And we should do no less. If there's a particular sin that we struggle against all the time, a, a sin that just besets us, Maybe the answer lies in memorizing the Word of God so that the Holy Spirit can then bring that to our minds when we're battling that temptation so we can have the victory over it rather than trying to just muster the strength on our own and trying to deal with Satan by ourselves. We're dangerously foolish if we imagine that we can go nose to nose with Satan and win. We've got to have a source of strength superior to our own. And through the Word of God and the work of the Holy Spirit and the help of our Savior, we have that source of strength. But Satan is a master deceiver. He's clever. He even knows the Scriptures and can quote the Scriptures. So let's take a look at these three temptations that Luke records for us here. The same three are listed in Matthew's account as well. But the first one, the lust of the flesh. Notice the setting here in verse 1. It says, Jesus was led about by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. The wilderness. So that's somewhat of a dramatic setting. The inhabited part of Judea, perched on the backbone of southern Palestine, and between that inhabited hill country around Jerusalem and, and such, between that and the Dead Sea, there stretched this terrible wilderness that they call Jeshimon. Jeshimon, which means the devastation. The devastation. So just imagine a wilderness setting that is so whatever that it's called the devastation. And so that's probably where Jesus is at. It's, it's a desolate, monotonous wasteland. And Jesus has been there for 40 days, being tempted by the devil, eating nothing during those 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days, it says he became hungry. Do you think? Yeah. And the devil said to him, if you're the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Well, Jesus has been without food for six weeks. Physically, he may have felt like he was sinking. Even dying, starved for food. And since he was the Son of God, he could have used his supernatural powers to turn the stones into bread or any other kind of food. I think I might have chose something different than bread. Okay, how about some steak and something, you know, whatever. But this temptation was mighty because of his hunger. And that's what Satan tempts him with first. None of us has ever been tempted to turn stones into bread. You know why? Because it's impossible for us. We're not tempted with the impossible, are we? So none of us have ever been tempted in this way. But Jesus could have done it in an instant and his hunger screamed at him, do it. And on first sight, I mean, this doesn't seem to be sinful. 
But it would have been a misuse of his divine power because if Jesus starts using his divine power for selfish ends at the beginning of his ministry, he never would have made it to the cross. He never would have went. And not only that, it would take him out of the realm of human existence. It could no longer be said that Jesus suffered in every way like we suffer with temptation if he could use a a miraculous means to escape it that's not available to us. But as Jesus thought about his hunger, he recalled Exodus Exodus 16 and Deuteronomy 8, which record how Israel had been hungry and grumbled against the Lord. And how God chose to meet their desires with quail and manna that he just supplied for 40 years for them till they made it to the promised land. And so the lesson to Jesus, I think, is pretty obvious. God can support his people with extraordinary means. He can even, if he wishes, make man live just by speaking the word. So Jesus answered the devil and said, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. In essence, by alluding to those Old Testament scriptures, Jesus is saying, I'm not going to complain. Neither am I going to take matters into my own hands. My Father has not immediately provided bread, but I will trust Him and His Word. And He refused to give in. Jesus was an obedient son. And the word of God was his meat and drink. It should be ours also. And again, our temptation is not going to be to turn stones into bread because the impossible things don't tempt us. But how often do we, how often are we tempted to take matters into our own hands and bring about results on our own rather than trusting God for a result? Like Abraham and Sarah Sarah telling Abraham, take my handmaid Hagar, maybe we can have a child that way. Or how about Jacob? We we, we try to help God out. And then we make a mess of things. You know, we don't know how to be hungry, I don't think. I mean, there are hungry people among us. Our food pantry gets used every week. But to know hunger like some people know hunger in this world, I think we hunger for all the junk foods of life. And I'm not talking ding-dongs and cupcakes, okay? Hostess. I think we hunger for money and sex and power and recognition and happiness instead of hungering for what is truly good and satisfying. God wants us to hunger for Him. Hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus learned that lesson. I wonder if we have. So the lust of the flesh. Secondly, the lust of the eyes. The devil leads Jesus up to a high place, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil says, this can all be yours if you'll just bow down and worship me. Now, Satan's request for worship here is absolutely outrageous. But he's very subtle in his request. Something that we miss in in the English translation sometimes is verb tenses and their meanings. Satan here, the verb tense and what Satan requests indicates a single action, a one-time thing, not a continuous thing. 
In other words, Satan isn't asking Jesus to continually give him allegiance and worship. Satan's saying, just this once. Just this once. And sometimes isn't the pull of temptation a little stronger when someone tells you, oh, just this once. Just this once. Nobody will know. Just this once, Jesus, you can win the world without pain and without the crucifixion. Just this once, all nations are going to open their gates to you as their new king. Just this once, Jesus, take the easy path to kingship. Be a shortcut savior. Instant exaltation as opposed to the cruel agony that awaits you on the cross. But Jesus said, it's written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There wasn't going to be any compromise in Jesus' ministry. No concessions to the power brokers of the world. No seeking uh, improper ease. No idolatry here with Jesus. Praise God. Jesus said no again. And again, let me remind you, don't suppose that the temptations that Jesus had to face were somehow easy. I think they were excruciating. But Jesus met them as a human totally dependent on the Father. And I don't think we have to look very far to, to see the application to our own lives. Our culture today calls us to avoid pain and to take the easy way, the path of least resistance. But God's word still speaks truly to us. 2 Timothy 3.12 tells us everyone that wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Jesus embraced the cross by, by refusing the easy way. And as his followers, he says, we've got to do the same thing. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And then the third temptation, the boastful pride of life. Satan takes Jesus to Jerusalem, has him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and says, if you are the Son of God, jump off. Because it is written, he will give his angels charge concerning you, and they will bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. We're not certain where the highest pinnacle of the temple was, but there were parts of the temple that would have been at least 450 feet from the valley below, the Kidron Valley. It was also Jewish tradition in their expectation for a Messiah that the Messiah would appear miraculously and spectacularly on top of the temple. That's what the Jews thought. So if Jesus would have done this visibly on top of the temple, jumping off, being caught by angels, everyone that witnessed it would know that he is who? The Son of God, the Messiah. Here's a shortcut, Jesus, to your messianic ministry. The problem is that he would have been completely misunderstood and God's plans would have been defeated. Satan quotes the scripture from Psalm 91, verse 11. It's like Satan says, okay, Jesus, you've been quoting scripture to me. Let me quote some. You're committed to following the scriptures? Okay, follow this one. Obey this one. This is what the people are looking for in a Messiah. You're a man of faith, aren't you? Just jump. Let the whole world see who you really are. 
But Jesus thought otherwise. He knew that no word, he, 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 he had no word from the Father that directed him to jump off the temple. So again, as God's son, he, he couldn't do anything in his own power because that would be putting God to the test. And Jesus responds this third time by saying that very thing in Deuteronomy 6.16. It is said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. A strange temptation. I mean, why would Jesus want to jump off the temple? Well, what Jesus confronts here, I think, is the ultimate publicity stunt. Right? I mean, the greatest evangelistic technique ever devised. By, be, by jumping off, being caught by the angels, all in Jerusalem would, would have proof that, yeah, this is the Son of God, this is the Messiah, so what's the harm? I think some people in the church today would probably even nudge Jesus and say, go ahead, go ahead. I mean, shouldn't we do anything it takes to get people to believe? Jesus says no. There's an old saying that says, what you win, what you win them with is what you win them to. If people come to see the publicity stunt, you constantly have to wow them. Because next week you have to top it. And the week after that, you have to top that. You just have to, I mean, it never ends when, that, when you do that. But listen, there's a, there's a vast difference between trusting God and testing God. Jesus trusted his father completely. He knew his father would save him if he jumped off the temple. But trust is shown in obedience, not in testing. To test God is to attempt to control God, to manipulate God, to put God on a leash. And the God of hosts, you can't do that with him. It's blasphemy to try. We cannot control God. The world is in his hands. He's Lord, not us. And so the message here is clear. Don't attempt to force God to act. That's what testing God is, trying to force God to act. Jesus didn't do that. As the Son of God, Jesus chose to live in absolute submission to the will of God in each one of these temptations. His sole desire was to do what the Father commanded him, and that needs to be our desire as well. And if this is true for the Son of God, for Jesus, how much more is it true for us? Aren't we to live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God? Sure. Aren't we to worship the Lord God and serve Him only? Absolutely. Are we to ever put God to the test? No way. So there's a lot of wisdom in these temptations for us. And Jesus resisted these temptations as a real man. He really was tempted just like we are, but he didn't sin. He conquered temptation because he was full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. We too can be full of the Holy Spirit and be led by the Spirit. And when we are, we'll exhibit the fruit of the Spirit. That's mentioned in Galatians 5, verse 22 and following, the seventh of which is faithfulness. Faithfulness. Jesus also conquered temptation because he was filled with the Word of God. In each of these three temptations, he says, it is written, it is written, it is written. If we fill our hearts with the Word of God, 
It'll help us to overcome temptation as well. You know, we can't live on every word that comes out of the mouth of God if we don't know the Word of God. And that's why it is absolutely vital that we follow Jesus' example and regularly study the Word and even commit it to memory so the Holy Spirit can then bring it to mind to battle. Alan, in Ephesians 6, said, And put on the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The Word of God. Temptation is inevitable, folks. You're going to be tempted. Temptation in itself is not sin, but it's wrong when we yield to the temptation. But it can be resisted. James 4, 7 says, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Jesus beat Satan, so can we with his help. So don't give up. You may have a particular sin in your life that you just have to constantly battle And sometimes you win and sometimes you lose. Fill yourself with the Word of God and with the Holy Spirit and you'll see more victory. And finally, Jesus' temptations mean that we never face temptation alone. Because when we're tempted, there's somebody right there beside us who's been through it all, who's faced it before us. In every way that we are tempted, Jesus has been tempted probably over that 40-day period of being tempted. And he comes to our help. He comes to our aid. He understands the strength and the subtlety of temptation. And because he himself suffered when he is tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. He's able. And with him, so are we. So we come today to a time of decision. I don't know what decisions you may need to make. Maybe you've been battling against a particular sin or a temptation in your life, and and it's been a struggle for you. And maybe you've just been given in and you've quit fighting against it. Well, if that's the case, you need to repent. And maybe your next step today is to repent of something that you've been giving into that you know is wrong. Maybe you need to accept Christ as Lord and Savior. Maybe that's your next step. Or seeking a a place where you can serve with other Christians because you're already a Christian. We'd love to have you here at New Hope. Or a place of service where you can use your abilities. What's the next step for you? As we battle, we're going to battle temptation probably every day of our life. Take the route Jesus took. He will stand with you and he will help you. Let's stand and sing.